1: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
2: Angela Merkel is no more. She has bestrode European politics for 16 years. Take that, Margaret Thatcher. And her party uh, has had an almost automatic right to rule for all of that time. It may well lose office if not power this evening, though the baffling traffic light coalitions that are being discussed may mean that they stay in there in a coalition government. The big winners appear to be the Social Democrats. Once on the floor, around 10%, 11% in the public opinion polls, they appear to have scored 25% which is pitiful if you think of it but might actually give them the chancellorship or will it have to go to the so-called greens although they are anybody's they might actually go into coalition with the right wing as with the center-left they might be left at the post altogether in a grand national coalition they're still counting in the elections there. We'll bring you up to date if any more news emerges. But the fate of German politics is of very great importance to all the people of Europe, including the people of Britain. The direction of the European Union is at stake also, not least because President Macron faces a very difficult re-election in France in the next few months. But if the Social Democrats in Germany have done better than expected, the Social Democrats in Britain have had a disastrous conference so far. Uh, Their wooden leader, Keir Starmer, robotic and almost an artificial intelligence on the British political scene, has presided over a fiasco this weekend. First, he said that he wanted to change the rules for the election of leader of the party, scrap the system that gave him the leadership in order to make it effectively impossible for anyone to the left of him ever to be leader again. Part of an ongoing purge, scourge, the scourging of Labour is what is going on now. Few panic amongst putative leaders after him because most observers uh, agree. Even desperate Dan Hodges today wrote Keir Starmer off and said it was time for him to go. Putative challengers like Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, and like Angela Rayner, one Angela goes, another one thinks that her hour has come. As the deputy leader of the Labour Party, she issued forth a blood-curdling description of the majority of the British people. (laughs) She called them Tories, but she was really speaking to their voters when she described them as racist, misogynistic scum. Now, she said it was kind of just Northern banter. But that is, of course, not how it's been taken, not least by her own leader, who's promised to have a word with her. But this is all virtue signaling to the Labour members. Vote for me, says Angela. I'm a real class fighter. I'm so poor, my mother used to serve me dog food because she couldn't read the labels. Gave me jelly and shaving cream because she couldn't read the labels. I'm so poor, says Angela. I would have been taken into care in today's world, except that wouldn't have happened because there's not enough social workers to check up on children in vulnerable households like she once was. Pregnant at 15 while still at school. All of these are signals uh, for Angela Rayner's forthcoming Labour leadership campaign challenge. But it's all the narcissism of the small difference. What Freud called the magnification of small differences to make people imagine uh, that a real choice, a real dichotomy is in play here. The truth is you couldn't slip sixpence between the two cheeks of the same backside in British politics. And the same is true, essentially, in the United States of America between the Republicans and the Democrats. Therefore, they have to magnify, they have to megaphone such small differences as exist to fool the public. That's the truth of the matter. I'm more northern than Angela Rayner. I'm just as working class as Angela Rayner. And I don't go around calling my political opponents scum, not least because I'm trying to win their voters over to my point of view. And calling someone a misogynistic, racist piece of scum is probably the least likely way of achieving that. Indeed, Labour has been on that course as a whole, left and right, for so many decades now, it might very well be true that the next Labour prime minister is yet to be born. I don't call my political opponents scum because, well, I think it's dangerous. It's the language of civil war. After all, if someone is a misogynistic, racist piece of scum, then why are we sharing the same air with them in debates and arguments? Why are we sitting in parliament with them? Why aren't we organising a revolution to overthrow them? You see where this all leads? But I'll tell Angela what a better description of scum would be. Picture a politician who was a complete nobody, utterly obscure. No one had ever heard of them. And a leader comes to power and gives them a place in the sun puts them on the front bench, promotes them, gives them titles, shares platforms with them. And then that politician stabs his or her patron in the back multiple times. That politician has secret dinners with, say, someone called Lord Cashpoint, a supporter of everything, that politician pretended to oppose. Lord Cashpoint was the benefactor of, and indeed the financial organizer of, the very Tony Blair that the young politician purported to despise. And at those secret dinners, a plot was hatched, which came to fruition and which led to the overthrow of that politician's former patron led to his expulsion from the Labour Party and led to the complete rout of everyone associated with them, including that politician's own flatmate, a former member of the front bench just like him or her. A betrayer, an apostate, a backstabber, a liar and a deceiver. Angela, that's what would be scum. Enough of these pretenders, imposters. Why do I even care? Well, I care because every country needs an opposition and Labour sure ain't anybody's idea of an opposition. Perhaps we'll come back to that later. Perhaps in the a context of the poll that we're running. Who will be the next Labour Prime Minister? Angela Rayner, Andy Burnham, or C, not born yet. You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my Telegram, on my YouTube channel right now on that. I want to turn to more globally significant matters. Stephen Donziger has been under house arrest for three whole years. If you're a regular viewer and listener, you already know that because we have regularly featured him on the show. To call him a martyr to corporate power would be to understate it. Chevron have basically bought their own court, their own judges, their own bailiffs, and have managed to keep a man who is not even charged by the criminal justice system, locked up in his own house for three whole years, unable to live a normal life, unable to work entirely dependent on the goodwill of those who have supported his case, including our first guest, the one and only legendary Roger Waters. He's up in court this week, Stephen Donziger. What is this private court going to do next? Three years of house arrest, what's next? Devil's Island, the guillotine, all without a single buy-your-leave from the Attorney General of the United States or any legitimate public justice system court. It's going to be important, that court case, because it's going to delineate the boundaries of corporate power and private justice in the United States of America. It's an important case. But important as it is, it's not as important as the epic piece of journalism published today by Yahoo News not the Communist Workers' Party daily, not the Russian media, but by Yahoo News. A three-header written after a great deal of research and interviews with more than 30 US intelligence officials as well as politicians, White House staffers, and politicians in and around the administration of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. It is an epic piece of work. And it reveals, I say reveals, but again, regular viewers and listeners already know that Julian Assange, the truth teller, the publisher, the journalist, has been subjected to the most remorseless, campaign of persecution ever known since the invention of the printing press, since men and women began to communicate with each other in writing. All because he told the truth, the uncomfortable truths that the powerful never wanted you to know. Julian Assange has been subjected to set up frame-up, false accusations, incarceration, cruel torture, kidnap, rendition, two years in Belmarsh, maximum security jail, facing extradition, facing a 145-year prison sentence in the internal Guantanamo in Colorado. He's been spied upon. He's been betrayed. He's been sold by the former president of Ecuador. But what we didn't know in the detail we now know, thanks to this piece in Yahoo, is that at the very highest levels of the American government, Serious discussions took place about whether or not it would be legal and if legal, practicable to murder him in London in the Ecuador embassy at the highest level in the presence of the President of the United States. Discussions driven by the former Secretary of State, Fat Mikey Pompeo, in his capacity as head of the CIA and as Secretary of State of the United States of America. Whether to murder a journalist in London, in an embassy, whether it would be legal and if legal, practicable. Go away, Don't censor yourselves, said Pompeo. Give me the options of how we could murder a journalist in London, in an embassy, the sovereign territory of a third country. If not murder him, then kidnap him. Illegally, extraordinarily rendition him through a black prison where we could rid ourselves of this turbulent priest. These discussions took place over years. The building was bugged. My conversations with Assange were bugged. Pamela Anderson having a pee in the toilet of the embassy was bugged every move that Julian Assange made was illegally bugged and watched in real time by American intelligence officials. It's all in the article. Julian's children's nappies were stolen so they could get the DNA and establish his fatherhood of those children. You feel me? This was all happening. Now if you were one of these liberals, progressives, leftists, who lent yourself to this remorseless persecution, murder plots, kidnap plots, illegal spying of Julian Assange, hang your head now in shame. If you were one of those people that followed me around with placards, Julian Assange is a rapist. Hang your heads now in shame. History has already absolved Julian Assange and those like me that love him and supported him. We're already absolved, but for you, the chickens are coming home to roost. The article reveals that the Americans and the British were agreed upon a shootout on the streets of London. If the Russians managed to get Julian into a diplomatic car and drive him to an airfield to fly him to Russia. Now, I don't know if Russia ever had such a plan. If they did, hats off to them. God bless you, squire. Well done, the Kremlin, if they did. I don't know if, as the report states, Julian turned down such an escape plan. If he did, he was foolish to do so. If he'd asked me, I would have told them to go ahead with it. But if it had happened, American and British officials, Openly, well not openly, openly amongst themselves, discussed a gun battle on the streets of London. The shooting of the tires of a Russian embassy motor car. The shooting of the tires of a Russian aeroplane. If he managed to get to the airfield the hovering of a helicopter over the aircraft to make sure it couldn't take off. This was all discussed for years at the highest levels of the British and American governments. And guess who was one of the participants in the discussions? None other than Her Majesty's Leader of the Opposition, then the Director of Public Prosecutions, Sir Keir Starmer QC. And some fools wonder why I despise him. Now, some uh, podcast news. The podcast had another incredible week with a rise of 14% in total downloads. That's on top of last week's 10% increase, making us not only one of the fastest growing political programs on screens and on radio, but now in podcasts too. We're now one of the top political podcasts, not just in the UK, but also in Switzerland, Japan, Germany, Thailand, Taiwan, and believe it or not, the UAE. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends so more people can enjoy moats. The poll's going uh, great guns. Who'll be the next Labour PM? Angela Rayner, 6%. That's right, the class warrior who calls her opponents Schumann Scum, 6%. Andy Burnham, uh, the mayor of Greater Manchester, 31%. But by far, the majority of people agree with me that the next Labour Prime Minister is not born yet. You can vote uh, on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube, and on my Telegram channel. Now, we're still trying to reach Roger Waters, but up next is a man with just as much star quality. It's Kevin Marr, who's up at the Labour Party Conference, author and analyst of all things Ireland, as well as a few things Labour. Kevin Marr, thank you for joining us. I'll not ask you to play your guitar in lieu of Roger Waters, but uh, you're looking marvelous, uh, I must say. Uh, Before we turn to Ireland, Let's go to the war zone, uh, war-torn Labour conference in Brighton. Uh, What do you make of the show so far?
3: It's been a very difficult week um, to begin with. And as I say, difficult week, we're still on Sunday. Um, It's been (laughs) very difficult for Sir Keir Starmer um, so far. He's obviously tried to bring forward um, some pretty big uh, internal party changes uh, which have run into the sand Uh, with opposition um, from the left of the party but also from uh, a noticeable silence um, from people who might be as erstwhile allies. Um, How much of this actually cuts through with the general public is is, is a moot point really and it's all to play for I suspect for him on Wednesday when he addresses the conference which will be for the first time um, obviously given the Covid lockdown. Uh, It's the first time he's had the chance to actually stand at the podium for an hour or so and actually lay out his stall um to the british people so so you know we'll see what happens um close of play wednesday um but um you know british politics is going through quite a quite a tumultuous period um you know we're down to kind of one word really brexit covid boris uh, have dominated the last five or six years and and Looking at the opinion polls today, you know, the Conservatives still have a pretty pretty decent lead in the polls, given we've got all the problems that we've got that, that are stemming from Brexit and from Covid, fuel shortages and, and the like. I've driven down here um, to Brighton on England's south coast uh, this afternoon and I've passed by. 20 or so um, service stations coming down the, the M1 from the north of England and every single one of them has run out of, run out of fuel. Um, so, so, so the government's got some real domestic issues to grapple with and that's usually a great opportunity for an opposition leader um, to make hay and make capital and actually set themselves up as an alternative government. So really it's all down to Keir Starmer on Wednesday to pull off and the
2: performance of a lifetime. <laughs> it would have to be the performance of any lifetime, uh, judging by the local council election results, real votes from real people. Uh, every Thursday, uh, they seem to get worse and uh, worse. Um, but even our old friend, uh, desperate Dan Hodges, in the Mail on Sunday has finally called time on Keir Starmer. He quotes him as saying... I don't get politics. I don't understand it. I don't like it. Uh, that seems to me to be the message written on Keir Starmer's face most of the time.
3: Well, he's—I mean, he's got—he's got—he's got a huge problem. He's not only um, dealing with the aftermath of the 2019 election, where obviously Labour was reduced to its lowest number of MPs since 1935. He's he's got a longer-term problem for the Labour Party. The Labour Party has been in power um, between 1997 and 2010, 13 years. Um, We had the financial crisis there at the end. Um, And, and, you know, Labour, as it was in the 1950s and was in the 1980s, is kind of looking inwards and, and asking what kind of a party it is. Is it a party that wants to make incremental change and work with the grain or is it a party that wants to make transformational change and actually tip the apple cart up and and you know this is a question the labour party goes to every generation and so in, in a sense there's nothing new here i mean british politics um british politics is an agglomeration of, of, of interests Because of the, the system we've got, the first past the post system, the party of the right, the Conservatives, and the party of the left, Labour, have got to agglomerate huge amounts of political space and huge amounts of difference of opinion as well. Um, and synthesising all of that and producing something that can actually win an election um, is a huge challenge for the Labour Party. And the Conservative Party historically has just been much, much better at it. You know, The, the Tories take a view of what's unpopular, Leaders or policies, they just ditch them and they move on. Labour finds that much, much harder to do, and this process is dragged out for, for for a huge number of years. I mean, you know, the party's been in opposition now since 2010, so we're in the kind of 11th year of, of opposition and, and and political futility in in, in a sense. Um, the opportunity arises though because of because of the impact of COVID and the impacts of Brexit. Uh, and some of the problems that the the current government has got, that actually if the Labour Party gets its act together in the next 18 months, there is a huge opportunity to win the next general election or to do certainly considerably better um, than the party managed in in, in recent times. But at at the moment, it's a party that's looking inwards and, and tearing strips off each other. I mean, there's no way of there's no way of hiding that. Um, and parties that are divided simply aren't going to win an election. So, so the, the, the problem for Labour is to restore some equilibrium, to restore some sense of discipline and common purpose from across its different tribes, uh, because the opportunity is there, because we've got a government that, that's making quite a hash of things at the moment.
2: Well, uh, of course, uh, famously, if my auntie had a beard, she'd be my uncle. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that all uh, uh, pans out. But haunting the conference. Like Banquo's ghost is, of course, one Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader. Indeed, he, he was the leader just two years ago. Now he's not even a Labour MP kicked out by Keir Starmer. But the Labour Party hasn't kicked him out. Only Keir Starmer has kicked him out. This is all indicative of uh, half in, half out, semi-detached, willing to wound but not to kill. Uh, the Labour Party must be heading, surely... For a final reckoning uh, on these things, otherwise you're going to have uh, you're going to have this Banquo's ghost uh, haunting your party until uh, until the end of time, until the end of his time, anyway.
3: That's true. I mean, that's a, it's a fair point to say. Actually, you've got a kind of ha- Jeremy Corbyn in a halfway house. Um, he was uh, suspended from the party, then brought back into the party, then suspended from the parliamentary party. Uh, where he, he remains currently suspended but of course he's, he's a darling of the, the conference fringe um even tonight as well so, so yes it's it's a problem it's a mess um you know the labor party you know as you well know george is is you know is a coalition of interests stemming from um you know democratic socialists social democrats different geographies people with often quite different views of of, of, of politics and political life and the labor party is always at its best. When it can, it can, it can amalgamate these different interests and synthesize them and produce something that everybody can live with. That's when it wins elections in, in you know, the 1960s, and in, in the 1990s as well. When it doesn't do that well, um, it becomes quite vociparous and, and, and divided, uh, and people um, question whether they're actually in the in the right party because they disagree with people in within the same party. So fundamentally, uh, the Tory party is just much much better. Uh, concealing its difficulties in its internal tribulations and internal wounds. Labour plays them all out in in open for everybody to see. But I mean, the bottom line is in in, in democratic politics is the voters are always looking. And if the voters don't like what you're offering or they just say, look, you know, you're a a disorganised rabble and you can't even agree amongst yourselves, you're not going to win an election. And if you can't win an election, that should be just as much an issue of concern for Keir Starmer as it is for Jeremy Corbyn or anybody on the left As it is for anybody on the Labour right as well because that means political redundancy and unfortunately that's the kind of ground Labour's in at the moment that that it looks it looks as though it's more interested in its internal wrangling that it doesn't provide an offer for the country to unite around. Now as I say we're potentially 18 months away from a general election where the public will have a say over Covid, over the impacts of Brexit, over the impacts of Boris Johnson's uh, premiership and and, you know it feels to me like there's a genuine moment there where a lot of people might say, look, I'm looking for an alternative to that. Uh, and it's up to Labour, really, to provide that alternative. And that's, that's the bottom line um, for the party. And, and, and that's how British politics works, I'm afraid.
2: The, but they, they, they seem to have an almost uh, masochistic, certainly fetishistic, uh, attachment to going against the grain. Uh, Angela Rayner's rant Uh, Might have uh, won or some more voters, though not according to our poll, in any Labour leadership campaign, but won't have won or any voters at all amongst the electorate. Uh, Keir Starmer's rejection today of public ownership, you and I are both old enough to remember the Central Electricity Generating Board, publicly owned, and doing a grand job Uh, in distributing power uh, in the country. He rejected any going back to public ownership of the energy distribution uh, sector. Uh, He also, uh, (laughs) I don't know whether to laugh or cry, he rejected Andrew Marr's point uh, that uh, only women have cervixes. He said, that's not right. like a mad professor, he couldn't explain why it wasn't right, because it very obviously is right uh, in terms of science and biology. Why do they fix themselves uh, to such unpopular uh, points of view?
3: That's uh, a very, that's a very good question. I mean, just on the last point, I mean, I, I think we've, we've reached a point where people are elevating. Uh, sociology over biology, um, and I think I think that's 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 the, the nub of that debate. I mean, it's interesting that if you roll back three or four years, it was a Conservative government, it was a Conservative minister in yeah. Justice Greening, who was then the Equalities Minister, who brought forward a green paper about um, self-identification for for trans people, which which very nearly ended up on the statute book without any real interrogation or public discussion. And and, and it's interesting that they, the Conservative Party has resiled. Um, a very long way from that position today. And Labour, alas, um, is ripping itself to bits on, on these points, which to the general public just seem, frankly, mad. They seem so abstract and so um, self-absorbed and delusional that they, they look and sort of say, well, if that's the kind of thing that you think is important rather than jobs or housing or the cut to universal credit, for example, if you if you think those issues are more important than everyday real issues that affect real people and real families. That then, you know, are you fit to govern? And that's that's the nub of Labour's dilemma. It needs to get onto ground, which which reflects the realities of the British public, but also of those very many seats, uh, particularly in the north of England and in the East and West Midlands, that Labour lost um, often for the first time ever in 2019. It's got to win all these places back. Never mind winning back Scotland, which of course is is I know a, a cause uh, close to your heart, George. But I mean, I mean that that seems a million miles away right now. Now that's that's how Labour produces a coalition that can actually govern the country, that that, that pulls together Scotland, the North of England, the industrial heartlands, and and, and enough middle class marginals in the South of England to actually to actually govern. That's how it's done it in the past. And at the moment, it looks like a very tall order to pull all that together.
2: Now you're the go-to man on Ireland. Have been for me for many, many years. Uh, bring us up to date uh, with what's happening in the north of the country, where politics uh, appears uh, to be uh, up a gum tree. Well, I mean, we've,
3: we've had an opinion poll um, a few weeks ago, which which has which has caused uh, a not not in, in, insignificant amount of consternation between the unionist parties, which shows. The, the democratic unionists which are the largest of the of the unionist parties people often think there's just one but there are in fact three or four that reflect different strands of opinion um, that the dup which which currently um holds a position of first minister and has been dominant um, for the last 15 years or so is, is starting to really struggle um and and partly that's a result of the impact of the northern ireland protocol which is the agreement that Boris Johnson agreed to as part of his Brexit withdrawal agreement, which ensures that there is no hard border on the island of Ireland, which which is replete with all kinds of significance in terms of the troubles and the period before, you know, razor wire and watchtowers and all the rest of it. We don't want that to go back to that. But it requires, because Britain is obviously leaving the European Union as a land border with the Republic of Ireland, it requires um, border checks happen somewhere. And and the government are lighted on... Um, having them um, take place at the ports. Uh, this is the Northern Ireland Protocol. Unionists and loyalists, uh, the more militant version of the unionists, are up in arms about this. To put it mildly, they see Northern Ireland being treated differently than the rest of the UK. That there is a physical uh, division in terms of in terms of the checks on goods and, and coming in coming into Northern Ireland. They're very irate about it. There's been lots of protests over the summer by loyalists, which have involved some fairly sinister protests, petrol bombs, ripping up copies of the Good Friday Agreement, lots of graffiti on walls and all the rest of it. Uh, And the DUP is is suffering the fallout from this. They they are held accountable by loyalists from whom they draw a lot of their electoral support uh, because they uh, trusted Boris Johnson, basically, that he wouldn't institute a hard border at 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 the borders, which is exactly what he's done. The DUP are reaping a whirlwind from this. They've seen their electoral support half uh, in opinion polls, uh, they've got support drifting both ways. So the Ulster Unionist Party, which is a slightly more liberal version of the of the DUP, they're gaining support off the back of the DUP's difficulties, and traditional Ulster voice, traditional unionist voice rather, which is a, a Paisleyite sect and has been regarded as kind of beyond the fringe. Really, it's also uh, drawing support away from the DUP. So in effect, you've got the unionist vote splintering three different ways which has the effect of making Sinn Féin in opinion polls the largest party by a considerable margin. Now, we've got elections to the Northern Ireland Assembly that are due to take place next May, uh, which would see potentially Sinn Féin top a poll and therefore take the role of First Minister of Northern Ireland. Now, it doesn't matter in some regards, because First Minister... Deputy First Minister are a joint office. It's it's a it's a way to make sure from the time of the Good Friday Agreement that you couldn't have unionist majority control, uh, which is of course is the, the problem that led to the troubles in the first place uh, in the 1960s. So so the, the joint offices, but it's that sort of pecking order that changes, where Sinn Fein are kind of top 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 of the top of the pops. Now unionists find this you know a real kind of signifier of their long-term decline. So so you get all kinds of noises off from the fringe saying, well, we don't want that. We want pacts. Uh, The Ulster Unionist Party yesterday said that they weren't going to agree in a pact with with the Democratic Unionists. Um, There's there's talk of, well, we'll crash the institutions, Geoffrey uh, Donaldson, the new leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, has talked about if there aren't uh, major reforms to the Northern Ireland Protocol um, by by Christmas, that he will crash the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement and power sharing, which, of course, would be massively destabilising and massively significant uh, because he thinks he's drifting towards a major reckoning with the electorate in May anyway. Uh, now, now, you know, the British government's trying to make effectively some cosmetic changes the protocol there's no arguments about the protocol staying some unionists some loyalists are up in arms saying they they want the protocol to be scrapped entirely that's just not realistic the British government recognizes that's just not realistic Uh, so what it's looking from the European Commission are a few cosmetic changes to, to some of the checks to make them slightly less onerous so there's no delaying in goods transferring across from Great Britain that are going to be used in, in in Northern Ireland for a domestic market, so so that's the that's kind of the nub of the deal. That's what the government's trying to get to, to try and prop up the DUP so that it doesn't face this kind of apocalyptic um, electoral reckoning in May, which may or may not happen. But it, of course, it, this is all fits in the wider rubric of the future of Northern Ireland. This is the centenary year of Northern Ireland, and you know it's never looked frankly in worse shape than it does today. And, and on the other side of the equation, you've got nationalists. Uh, and Republicans in Sinn Féin that are looking and thinking we're, we've never been closer to the historic goal of Irish reunification, and that's very much on their agenda. And if these institutions are brought down by by the Democratic Unionists, and if they don't want to play ball, and if they don't want to recognise that perhaps a Sinn Féin uh, politician should be first minister, if there's any if there's any of that kind of, kind of game playing, that, then I think the the growing view um, amongst Sinn Féin and amongst constitutional nationalists as well is that actually, look, it's then a United Ireland or nothing. They want a border poll to, to put this issue out there because they, they've, they've kind of had enough of some of the DUP's game playing. Because, of course, the DUP was a very strong supporter of Brexit on the basis, frankly, that they thought what Brexit would entail is that if it makes uh, Northern Ireland less European, it also makes Northern Ireland less Irish I think what they hoped for was, frankly, that they would unfurl razor wire across the Irish border with watchtowers and barking Alsatians. And of course, that's, that was never going to happen.
2: That uh, ain't happening. Uh, we'll have to stay in touch with you uh, about this, uh, because I think this will be the big story of 2022. Hey, you, do you
1: want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you, hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education, on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, tweet a question to George, or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees, hosted by one of the world's greatest orators, the mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together.
2: Now it's my duty to inform you that rumours that Angela Rayner did not have a leadership election campaign team in place are clearly unfounded. In the last five minutes... Our poll has transformed utterly. Who will be the next Labour Prime Minister? A. Angela Rayner, 53%. Up 48%. B. Poor Andy Burnham. Left, trailing in the donkey derby, 15%. Down 16%. C. Not born yet. 32% 32% down 32%. 2,800 people have now voted. Angela Rayner has run up a huge phone bill, almost as big as the money she charged the public for her iPods and almost as expensive as the fancy shoes that she spent a 1,000 pounds on because she's working class, if you know what I mean. Now, China is on their mind always. The problem is we never hear from China. Nobody tells us how it looks from the standpoint of China. To see the South China Sea chock a block with foreign gunboats, to see uh, the high officials of respectable companies like Huawei being arrested and held under house arrest for years. We never hear the Chinese point of view, so we thought we'd go at least halfway there. Tom McGregor is married to a Chinese woman, has half Chinese children, lives and works, and has a wonderful life in China, but he's American. How's that for a compromise? It's the middle of the night, but Tom McGregor joins us from Beijing. Tom, thank you uh, for that. A serious point, though. How does it feel in China when all around you in quadraphonic sound are messages of of scorn, even hatred, uh, threats uh, and, and allegations and so on, Uh, Does that actually impact on Chinese lives at all? No, not at all. Uh,
0: The reality of China is they're very accustomed to being the villain uh, among many Westerners, uh, among many countries uh, around the world. They've been villainized for so long that they've just gotten used to it, and it's just a a normal uh, situation for them. The, the fact is is you have all this uh rumbling and mumbling uh, from all these Western governments saying how terrible china is and and has China changed no have the Chinese people changed no the so what's going on why why is all this uh, continuing well the West simply just does not understand China they think that if they do some criticisms, they threaten to do economic sanctions they they do any way to look China bad, that somehow China is going to cower and look weak and suddenly turn and change its government just to please the people who criticize them. No, that's not the Chinese way. Uh, face issues are very important in China. So if they, are be- if they feel they are being bullied, they bully back. It's just, that's just the way it is here. Uh, What I mainly do is, yes, I do live here, I'm very happy here, Uh, but I try to tell people what the real China is, not as if I'm pro-China or I'm a Chinese person. I'm just trying to let people know that uh, what they are doing in response to China is not working.
2: Well, not working, uh, to say the least, Uh, China now has a leader uh, who, I think, uh, by most tests, is uh, the strongest leader that they've had uh, since uh, Mao Zedong. Uh, He has taken the country on a slightly adjusted course, a bit more socialism, a bit less capitalism, a bit less uh, uh, tolerance uh, for the uh, frolics of the billionaires, even trillionaires. There are many uh, of, uh, of the Many billionaires in China, of course. Uh, Not a fundamental change in the mixed economy, but if you like, a slight change of direction. And his position must be strengthened, not weakened, by open calls for regime change in semi-official Australian newspapers and in other august publications. They want rid of the Chinese president. That's gonna make the Chinese even less likely uh, to change course, isn't it?
0: Certainly not. Uh, Things like that certainly don't work in China like they didn't work in Russia and their efforts to push out Putin in Russia. The Chinese respond in a similar manner. The more their leader is criticized and treated in a bad way, the more they love their leader and they just conclude that it's sort of like us versus them mentality. Uh, so the West, and also the West doesn't even make it a, a secret they're trying to do this. They say, oh, we need uh, r- uh, rules-based governance. Uh, we need uh, rules that China will follow. But then I've actually talked to Washington insiders. I said, well, who's uh, who's making the rules? Who's deciding the rules? Well, it's Washington. So how do you expect China to follow that if if, if Washington is making itself the rules-based referee, the judge, jury, and executioner. It just doesn't work that way in China. And then you ask a lot of these people who are insiders or, or uh, for whatever reason, they feel they don't need to compromise with China. They don't need to do anything about changing their positions. They're gonna be strongly anti-China. Yet they struggle, they tr- struggle to understand that maybe the Chinese don't like that. They're not appreciative of their efforts to do regime change to inform the Chinese how they need to live live their lives and govern themselves.
2: How does the... Why? How does the West get it so wrong? And it's everywhere. It's in the media. It's in the political class. The Chinese ambassador, believe it or not, was banned from the British Parliament uh, just the other day. Uh, the Canadian Huawei case, why do they get it so wrong? Because as you pointed out uh, at the beginning of this discussion, when you ask these critics, what has China actually done that has encouraged this wrath, this uh, hatred, this aggression, Australia being a case in point, what did China ever do to Australia And yet, Australia is now one of the most warlike and belligerent uh, flies ever to be found buzzing around an elephant.
0: Australia is a police state right now. Have you seen the videos? Yeah. You're not vaccinated? They they put a gun to your head nowadays. I've seen the videos on the streets. They put some woman in a chokehold just because she didn't wear a face mask in Melbourne, uh, Australia. I don't know when the date was, but... The, it no, was it's, a real become a, it's become a,
2: a yeah. cross between Mad Max and, and 1984.
0: Yeah, exactly. So what, what, what's Australia to say about freedoms and 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 allowing people to speak freely? They can't even protest anymore in Australia without the police state gunning them down, beating, beating the, the citizens up. I don't even see that in China. I mean, of course, they're not protesting. But... The, there is a police state in Australia right now. So they're the last people to talk about and criticize China over its so-called authoritarian regime. And another matter I'd like to address is why doesn't the West get it? Uh, I, it sounds arrogant, but people need to talk to me. People need to talk to people like me who live in China, who work in China, who can explain China to, to the elites. I think what's going on is you have these elites who live in a bubble. They have these so-called ideas about China and it will never change. And they do their articles in the media or they are politicians giving speeches about anti-China. But every once in a while, I will meet some of these people and I will ask them, where's your proof? Where's your evidence? They don't have it. They just are using talking points, anti-China talking points they've used their entire lives.
2: Now, Joe Biden uh, hasn't changed course. Uh, Donald Trump was literally unhinged on the subject of China and was surrounded by others like Steve Bannon, who, uh, although we now know, was in quite a close alliance with uh, anti-Chinese interests. Uh, Trump was unhinged, but Biden is following exactly the same course. AUKUS, this uh, Australian-UK uh, US uh, lash up, it's gonna bring nuclear submarines into the region as if it hadn't suffered from nuclear quite enough. Uh, He's uh, having this quad meeting with uh, India, Japan, uh, and so on, uh, basically constructing alliances to confront China. So it's a bipartisan approach in Washington, why?
0: Well, that's always been the case. Uh, When I talked to the Washington Insider recently, I was also a bit surprised Biden is continuing on with the anti-China. And the Washington Insider said that's been the Democrats are just as bad about anti-China as Republicans are, just in a different way. So for the Republicans, it's about trade deals. It's about military issues. Uh, For the Democrats, it's solely about human rights. So. They're always, they're actually, to be honest, the Democrats are even worse than the Republicans because at least the Republicans are willing to negotiate. Uh, You may believe that Trump was unhinged. I agree. Bannon and Pompeo were disastrous on China policy. But uh, Trump was looking for a a better trade deal, and he was open to negotiations. And they were headed in that direction until Trump, uh, from my opinion, lost, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and so Biden is just trying the same old, same old of anti-China stuff. Uh, his, he's crashing in poll numbers. Uh, his numbers are so bad that from, from what poll numbers are saying, that if Trump was to run against Biden this year or anytime soon, he would totally trash uh, Biden's chances of winning re-election. So Biden basically is just following a script thinking that the anti-China way is going to somehow rescue his political fortunes, when in reality, it's actually making it much worse. Because by pursuing this type of uh, tensions, you're going to create more problems on the global supply chains. China is not going to be so cooperative on economic cooperation deals with the West anymore if they tend to push back. Uh, the, the West also, you know, they really, really care much about this climate change uh, uh, conference that's coming up in November. But are we really sure Xi Jinping is going to show up and sign on if the West continues to criticize China the way it's doing right now? I mean, I, I heard she may go, but you don't know. Maybe they might change their mind, realizing they're not going to get any benefits from it.
2: Well, they might, so, change, the, is, they might yeah. change their mind on something even more uh, important. China has always had a no first use of nuclear weapon policy, unlike the United States, unlike Britain, unlike NATO. Uh, China has, as a matter an article of faith, uh, always said it will not be the first to use nuclear weapons in any conflict. But there is uh, growing speculation. Uh, amongst informed people uh, in Beijing that this may be coming under question. After all, no, if, no, uh, that, uh, if, if the West are moving military hardware uh, no, around no, China.
0: That's, that's, that's too much. Uh, that's just crazy speculation. The fact is, is China, if they were to move in that direction, they probably wouldn't tell anyone and start shooting. But when we reach that stage, it's already a bad stage already. Beforehand... There's just simply talks, uh, making such threats actually is rather scary. Uh, If some people are saying it, like say maybe perhaps the Global Times, the Global Times is not representative of the Chinese government, nor the voice of of the government or its people. The the Global Times is a very extreme version of Chinese patriotism, that uh, even many Chinese complain goes too far. So this idea that China's going to change that policy is way too drastic. Uh, you know, I can see how China might try to get some bargaining on climate change. But what you just addressed, that's, that's just too, that's too much. That, that might create uh, more problems. That might inspire South Korea and Japan to have their own nuclear weapons. It's, it's too risky.
2: Finally, and thanks for joining us, especially at this early hour. Uh, How has the Chinese economy bounced back from uh, the the COVID years, these lotus years?
0: Doing absolutely fine. I'm doing better financially. Myself, my family is, most people I know are doing better financially. There are no supply chain disruptions in China because it's the number one manufacturer in the world. It's interesting that I hear all these stories about supply chain disruptions all over the world while at the same time, they're trying to decouple from
4: China economically. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
5: and think about
4: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow.
7: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: So the the, the reality is China has been prepared for the possibility there's going to be more decoupling, uh, that more countries are going to turn against them, even in regards to globalism. So China has just turned inward. It's selling its goods to the Chinese, focusing on selling to Chinese consumers, rather, to the world's consumers. And so here the economy is doing quite well.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Tom McGregor, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now I can tell you that it's been reported that Sir Keir Starmer's package of leadership reforms has been approved by Labour members, laughably described, following a tight vote, 53.6. To 46.4. I say laughably because, of course, this was only achieved by the block vote of the once reviled trade unions, uh, particularly Unison uh, and some others who have ramrodded uh, this package of reforms, which means nobody can ever challenge Keir Starmer unless. He decides to go and if he does, the only someone with twice as many nominations from MPs as Keir Starmer had to achieve will be able to be on the ballot paper. Still for staying and fighting, I ask Labour members, the game's a bogey. It's over. It's time to walk. Let me do some social media. Uh, Bushman says, the usual identity politics from the Labour Party, they will never win back the red wall seats. Wayne says, shame someone like George couldn't be the PM. That's why we're doomed. And Hertfordshire 247 says, I think for Tories and Labour, we're all homeless, which could be dangerous. I agree when Boris was described as a red Tory. In fact, Labour and the Tory Uh, party, as I described earlier, are two cheeks of the same backside. It's Blairite Labour versus Blairite Conservative. When I hear people like Angela Rayner talk about today's Tory government as if they were Attila the Hun, you'd actually have to be really young or really stupid to believe that this is the most racist, misogynistic working class hating government Britain has ever had. I lived through the Thatcher era when Britain was shredded to pieces, when the labor movement was decimated, when industries were closed down, when the brute force of the ugly face of British capitalism and British imperialism abroad were brought to bear. This lot are Sunday school teachers compared to Keith Joseph, Norman Tebbit, Margaret Thatcher. You're either too young to know that or you're too stupid to have noticed it. Today's Conservative government are a gaggle of cocaine-sniffing party boys and girls. They're not homophobic, half of them are gay. The others are frolicking alongside gay people. They're not racist. The Tory party government has got more people of color in it than any labor government has ever had anywhere. They are liberals. We've got a liberal Tory party And a Liberal Labour Party. That's why they've got to pretend that they really hate each other and call each other scum. Now, one man who is at the Labour conference used to be a legend round here. It's Damien in Brighton. Go ahead, Damien. Good evening, George. Evening.
8: How's it going? Uh, Very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Um, George, I'd like to discuss Keir Starmer's position, please. Yeah. Um, I believe it's impossible for Labour to win power while Keir Starmer is the leader of the party. Um, And the reason I believe that uh, can be summed up in one sentence, really. Um, Starmer tried to stop Brexit. Yeah. Um, He tried to cheat 17.4 million Leave voters out of their referendum victory, uh, which uh, was a gross offence against British democracy. Um, He then betrayed the 16.1 million voters who voted to remain by voting for the Tories' terrible Brexit deal. Um, Then if we dig into the numbers a little bit deeper, 70%, um, bearing in mind his strategy is to shift Labour right to appease to soft Tories, um, 70% of Tory constituencies voted Leave. Um, it's just not plausible, George, that um, to suggest that they would vote, those constituencies would vote for the person who tried to stop Brexit and whose support base is made, largely of, made up largely of Remainers who want to rejoin the EU. Hmm. Um,
2: Good point. I, I agree with all of that, Damien. But here are some facts. Yes. Uh, you tried very hard, admirably hard. I didn't have a dog in the fight, but you tried very hard to stop Uh, The General Secretary being confirmed, he's been confirmed. You tried very hard to stop these new leadership election rules, which just in the last hour we've learned have passed. So the game's over, isn't it?
8: Um, Okay, so yes, David Evans has been appointed. Um, It was the first, it's worth noting, that that was the first card vote ever held to ratify the appointment of a labour general secretary in the history of the party and david evans won um for 40 what two percent of uh, the party did not want him to be appointed so it's hardly a ringing endorsement george um and also he's
2: in his own position
8: true, true. Um, But it is worth noting also that the Labour conference this year at Brighton has been the most gerrymandered conference, also the most
2: gerrymandered conference in the history of the party. Also true, Um, but that also makes no difference.
8: No, true, but I'm talking about electability, George. Yeah, no, I I agree. Uh,
2: So let's summarise the position. Uh, Keir Starmer uh, is a disaster but cannot be removed. You would now need double the number of MPs to... Uh, Nominate someone else in his stead, uh, which makes it virtually impossible. His general secretary is in power. The purge will now be completed. Uh, So what does all that add up to? Uh, A walking disaster electorally is now impregnable in his position as leader.
8: Yeah, I mean, clearly the model, uh, the template that... uh that Keir Starmer and David Evans are following is the Democratic Party in the US, uh, where you do not have members, you have people who register to vote in primaries, um, and the party is funded by corporations and rich individuals, Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the the basic purpose of the exercise is, as Tony Benn said, to make capitalism safe. Um, but if, if I could just develop my point just a little bit more, George, if, sure. if you'd allow me to. Sure. Um, so the the, um, the rebuttal to my argument about the opportunistic positioning of Keir which to oh. any... Oh, go on, sorry. go on, yep, go on. Yep. I lost the, that uh,
2: last sentence. Give me that one again.
8: Yeah, sure. So the rebuttal to my argument, the Brexit, the Remainers will all say, you know, oh, everyone's going to have forgotten about Brexit by the next general election. But but it's a bigger issue. It's a matter of trust um, because the Tories won't let people forget. And what they're going to do, I believe, at the next general election, the Tories will run on the issue of trust. And they will show a clip of Keir Starmer in 2017 saying that Uh, respecting the result was a a, a matter of democracy and honour. And then next to that clip, they'll show a clip of him in 2018 refusing to accept the result. Now, as government is a matter of trust, um, Brexit has proved that Starmer's word is not his bond. Any manifesto he writes will not be worth the paper it's written on um, and Labour will lose the next general election on that basis. Um, so I think whilst it's a... Ho- basically what I'm saying, George, is that it's a hollow victory. There is a path to power for Labour at the next general election, even though it might be held as soon as, you know, within 24 months. And that path to power would be for the party to replace Keir Starmer with the leader if, if if Labour wants to win the next general election, it needs to replace Keir Starmer with a person whose word is their bond and who isn't closely associated with trying to overturn the largest democratic mandate in the history of British democracy and to re-adopt a similar platform to the 2017 platform that won 40% of the vote and brought Jeremy Corbyn within 2,227 votes of being invited by the Queen to form... The Labour government.
2: Who might that person be? Give us a clue.
8: Well, I'm quite positive about this. I mean, the, the whole point is that you know, Keir Starmer's the best the right wing's got, which isn't saying much because he's as wooden as a spoon, and and really doesn't. He's it would be like. Well, to answer your question, I, I'm not going to enter into ad hominem attacks. To answer your question on the left of the party and i know it's a very small grouping but we've got some great candidates that would make a great leadership team a fresh vibrant team we've got Zara sultana we've got richard bergen we've got dawn butler we've got ian lavery we've got barry gardner we've got very strong we could get a very strong leader and deputy
2: but they would now need to get double the number of nominations which they can't get
8: well that well let's just let let's let the polling the polling's Starmer's polling's dropping like a stone. Uh, Labour is, as, back to my original point. That You're not
2: serious that, that 80 Labour MPs would nominate Zara Sultana?
8: What I'm saying, George, is that as reality sinks into the Labour Party, and we've seen from recent election results that Starmer is electorally toxic for the Labour Party. He's not just unelectable, he's toxic. We will find out which Labour MPs want to keep their seats and which are happy to lose them and as the pressure comes on from the polling um, I think you might find that there would be Labour MPs who put their own self-interest first and are willing to uh, lend their nomination to a candidate on the left because what we've seen clearly from election results this century and it's worth bearing in mind that Corbyn, a socialist leader with a left-wing manifesto, won more seats and gained more seats, uh, won more votes and gained more seats than any other Labour leader this century. What we have seen. Are there,
2: is that are there any defeats that will uh, persuade you that actually you're flogging a dead horse, Damien? To
8: get to the mind, to get well, but just. The final point was on um, um, Labour loses millions of votes when it shifts right and gains millions when it shifts left. To answer your question, George, the best possible outcome, if Starmer stays in post, the best possible outcome I can see is that because of people becoming, people becoming fatigued with the Tories, similar to they, as they did in 1997, because of the lack of trust uh, in the Labour party, because it's, people vote it when it's left-wing and don't and drop off when it's right-wing I think there's going to be a collapse in the uh, turnout at the next election and if I just want to see as many socialists returned as possible and I'm looking across at America where you have 10 progressives in the Democrats who if they wanted who do hold the balance of power but choose not to use it, I think the best outcome, if Starmer stays, is that if we get as many socialist MPs into Parliament, be they in the Labour Party, be they in any other party, that form a, a, a block that acts as a voting block of between 40 to 50 socialist MPs, then it is very possible that uh, socialist MPs could hold the balance of power in the next
2: Parliament. Okay, good luck finding them. Thanks, uh, Damien. Welcome back. Uh, good to hear your voice again.
1: The giant Labour Party sailing clearance is now on. Hurry now, as we've got zero interest in our party. It's literally the lowest it's ever been. Give up on the common man and save today. That's right, we're getting rid of all of the Corbynites. Literally every single one. Being a Blairite has never been more in style. Only available at what should be the UK's biggest political well, uh, party. I've got to
2: tell you that new, uh, new uh, in our remarkable we're development... Doing this again. Angela Rayner is going to be the next Labour Prime Minister, according to thousands of people who voted in our poll this evening. If you believe that, I've got a bridge here in London that I could sell you, going very cheap. Anyway, the second poll is now up. In the light of the US death threats and extraordinary rendition plans that I outlined earlier, In the light of the U.S. death threats against Julian Assange, should he, in October, be extradited to the United States or released? It's a simple question. A, extradited, B, released. You can vote on my Twitter feed and on my YouTube and on my Telegram channel. Now, I'm very happy to say that we have Rachel Blevins on the line my colleague from RT America, and an adornment to the mother of all talk shows. Rachel, uh, thanks for uh, joining us on a busy night. Um, Let me put to you something that was just put to me from the Bahamas. Uh, There was uh, apparently a a recount in Arizona and Joe Biden won it uh, even more than was announced at the time. Does this mark the end, do you think, of Donald Trump's obsessiveness on the last election, Uh, which, if he doesn't shift uh, onto the next election, he may very well lose his chance?
7: You know, it's interesting that we haven't gotten an announcement from him on on the next election, rather, and exactly as you're saying, we continue to hear these statements from him. I don't think it's the end just quite yet because in this specific case, when it comes to Arizona, there's an interesting report going around on social media, and it kind of has something for everyone. On one hand, it says, you know, Biden took away more votes than they even previously thought before, but then on the other hand, it also mentions that there are a few thousand irregularities in there, which is to say that there were some duplicated votes or there were people who had voted when they shouldn't have voted when they were actually voting in another state, that kind of thing. So when you have a report like that, even with a number of people saying, no, this isn't the case, you're saying, hey, we shouldn't focus on those irregularities. Well, Donald Trump and his party, are—that that is exactly what they're going to focus on. And that's kind of what we're seeing with them now. And I know that a number of his supporters are really taking things like this, even though it's something where it's not going to change the outcome of the election that we saw last year, that is something that they're still focusing on. Now, my question to them would be, what are you going to do to ensure that the next election isn't like that, that you take care of all of those irregularities? And that really should be something that Trump should really focus on and kind of do that pivot to where he says, okay, we didn't like the way that it turned out the last time around. Now, what are we going to do moving forward? We haven't quite seen that just yet, but who knows? Uh, he's time still, will uh, tell he's still on the
2: stump. I saw him uh, giving a, a speech in which he uh, swore, actually. Uh, I was uh, quite surprised at that, given the Bible-belting base that he had extraordinarily have to wonder why anyone that uh, carried around a Bible would be quite so uh, affectionate about Donald Trump, who is a sinner if ever I saw one. Uh, But uh, uh, he's certainly still packing them in, isn't he?
7: He is, and you'd be surprised. I've met more than one person who believes that Trump was anointed by God. And so, yes, he's still has that movement of people that follow him. And even what we've seen over the last year, it's really reinforced it, because the people who support Trump, they see him as someone who isn't just a political figure. They still see him as someone who is anti-establishment and who is taking on the establishment as if he's different than every other person who said that they were going to take on the establishment. And that's been fascinating and almost terrifying to watch Because in the four years that Trump was in office, he really didn't change that much, especially when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, especially when it comes to these hallmark things that Democrats and Republicans magically seem to agree on. He didn't make any meaningful, lasting changes in those areas. And yet you very much do still have a force of people that are following him as if he is some sort of chosen leader. And I think that we are going to continue to see that play out, especially as we're looking to the next election.
2: What did you think of the dress? I thought she looked quite nice in it, actually.
7: (laughs) Um, AOC's dress from last week, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, one of those, you know, you've got to wonder what they have whenever it comes to these public relations teams that each of these politicians have. Someone told her that that was a good idea. You know, she claims she didn't pay the $30,000 for the ticket. But I mean, this is the same politician when we're talking about AOC, that whenever it came this week, to the House of Representatives, specifically passing funding for $1 billion in funding for Israel's Iron Dome, she voted present on it. And it's not like she had the deciding vote on it. I mean, I think the total was like 422-9, So it wasn't as if she would have made the deciding vote. Just for, on
2: that uh, for British uh, viewers and listeners, uh, voting present is the equivalent of abstaining, yeah?
7: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's I don't I don't even know why they get that option, but they do. And she was one one of the few Democrats to actually just vote present on it and then came out with this long statement after it. And it serves as a reminder, at least it should to every American that this is the political elite you are dealing with. They come together whenever it comes to, you know, like this week, we also saw them pass $778 billion for the National Defense Authorization Act. They're looking at increasing defense spending even more than in previous years even more than what the Biden administration was asking for. And yet, on the other token, they're saying, well, look at us, we're ramping down on U.S. presence in the Middle East, but then they're coming together to pass that much in funding. I mean, that should make you wonder right there what they have planned if they're not spending it on the wars that they claim that they're bringing to an end.
2: Well, let's dwell on that subject, uh, if you will. Um, Israel is a rich country. Uh, it gives free health care to all its citizens, it gives free university and schooling to all of its citizens. It's a country that has many of the things that you don't have. Yeah. Why shouldn't it pay for its own Iron Dome? Why should American taxpayers who don't have any of these things be paying a country that does? Have all of these things.
7: Yeah, I, I wish you could ask that same question to all of the members of Congress who stand there and support it, because they really do turn it into almost a religion and saying that this is our ally and we need to support them. And yes, anyone in that political body who takes a step back and says, wait a second, why aren't we funding this when the United States itself has hundreds of thousands of people who are homeless on any given night, when we have children who are in school rooms that are absolutely falling apart, when we have people who are struggling to gain access to basic health care when we as a country are not functioning in a way that we would even wish on our close ally Israel, it really does make you wonder, wait a second, why are we pouring so much money not only into their country, but also at the same time, why are we looking at increasing our defense budget and our defense spending even more? And what they do is they focus on these trigger words. They get up there and they say, oh, well, Israel's our ally, so that can't be questioned. Or they say, oh, well, China is upgrading their military. You know, they have a military, basically, is what they're actually saying. So, the United States has to make sure to continue to spend more money on our military. Meanwhile, they're wasting trillions of dollars on building, you know, new planes and new jets, much like the uh, F-35 program, I believe it was, that was just a colossal failure. And then they just kind of shrug their shoulders, and they're like, oh, our bad, we wasted trillions on that.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Now, the big story, isn't it, in the U.S. at the moment, is the uh, mandate from the president that all state, uh, federal employees have to be vaccinated. Is there any pushback against that?
7: You know, we have seen some pushback that's more on a state-by-state basis, which is you have, states like texas and like florida that are passing all-out laws saying we will not do any kind of vaccine mandate here and i think that that's really where we're going to kind of get the federal versus state control kind of debate going because of course for the biden administration's point they can have a mandate that goes just towards federal employees but now what they're seeing is pushback specifically from people like law enforcement, firefighters, groups of people who have made our society run, and now all of a sudden they're looking at possibly being out of a job in the next couple of weeks if they don't get the vaccine. And then on the other token, you have, you know, the Biden administration pushing possible booster shots. And I know for a lot of people that has created a lot of frustration because you have millions of Americans who they feel like have done their duty in getting the first shot, getting the second shot. Now they're looking at being told that they need to get a third shot. And it just kind of gets to that point where you have people saying, not only where does this end, but is the United States really giving its best? And are we in a position where we're doing everything that we can to protect ourselves? And so I think that is a debate that you're going to continue to see evolve, especially in the months to come, especially when it is you know the individual states that are then fighting back against the federal government.
2: Joe Biden still alive at the time of uh, interview?
7: That he is. That he is. And, you know, I think, to your point, I think that you can argue not only that he's old and senile, but also that Trump has a range of issues as well. I mean, unfortunately, we are in a situation in the United States where people continue to be in sort of this left-versus-right paradigm, where they feel like if you say something bad about one side, then that means that you automatically support the other side. And I'm here to tell you that you can criticize them both equally and that there is nothing wrong with
2: that. Remember her name, Rachel Blevins. She'll be in the Congress one day and she won't turn up a $30,000 a night Met Gala and she won't wear a daft dress sending a ridiculous slogan on the back of it, even though she'd look even nicer (laughs) than AOC in that dress. Rachel Blevins. Thank you, George. Thank you for joining us let's hear from anthony in detroit go ahead anthony
4: hey george yeah well oh uh, that's sad we only have one uh person in the u.s congress left who's said anything positive about assandra that he should be released and, really? you know there were three last last term but two of them uh, retired
2: so yeah wow. only one guy left unbelievable so, isn't it yeah pretty sad and, you know, what about um, the US about- media? What, what does the US media say about Assange, or do they just ignore it, like the British?
4: Oh, oh yeah, totally ignore totally ignore it. If they do, they kind of try to go with the smears that have been discredited,
2: so yeah. It's very, they, hard, they, they to, totally very hard to bear. It. Did you read the Yahoo News uh, interview? And there's more, I think, in the Greystone uh, project.
9: I didn't I read a, re, a
4: thread of on Twitter by Kevin Gostola. maybe I'll, I'll
2: read that it's article, a long read it's me a me long it's read Anthony but it is very well worth it I'll tell you I'll make the yeah. hairs on the back of your neck stand on end
9: yeah yeah I thought
4: I mean I, I thought it was kind of old news but I guess maybe they have more or better sources now it, for it. it well there uh, are better sources
2: more sources and it is old news for thee and me but not for the millions that read Yahoo. Uh, For the, the, this is a whole new audience that has now been treated to a devastating indictment of hysterical US government with accomplices like the British, uh, conspiracy to murder, kidnap, uh, illegally render on the streets of London, create an international, Incident beyond uh, anything that's ever been seen, even in a Cold War drama, you won't find the US, British, and Russian diplomats shooting at each other on the London streets.
4: Oh my gosh, it's mafia level activity. So, all right, it is. Keep fighting, George.
2: It, it absolutely is. Yep. Thanks, uh, Anthony, for that. Shall I go to Imran in Washington, the man that we made famous? Last week, go ahead, Imran. Uh, Hello, it's me, George Galloway, from last Sunday. You're on the air. I I remember you well. So do many others. Go on.
4: Uh, I just came to tell you three important things. Uh, I'm not going to waste your time, I promise you. The first thing I want to tell you is that my views on bin Laden will never change, irrespective of how hard you try to silence me. irrespective
2: Irrespective of fact. When you said you well, were a deist, is a he your deity? I, for, for,
4: for me, he's, he's a hero and a martyr for the Muslim world. Even though you're an ex-Muslim? And,
2: uh, you're an ex-Muslim.
4: Yeah, but that, that, that doesn't stop me from being influenced so, by But him.
2: you're entitled to nominate heroes for the Muslim world. Are you a provocateur, Imran? <laughs> Is it your purpose to discredit Islam and Muslims?
4: I'm not a provocateur. I, I, I see the world, in I see things differently. For, for, uh, for me, terrorism has a serious meaning. And actually, in, in Islam, there is revenge, actually. Revenge is sanctioned. I know, you, I know you'll never admit this because, uh, of course, you, you don't want to lose your audience. But in Islam, I can actually Listen, give you the specifics I, if you I want I
2: tell people what I believe whether I lose them or I don't lose them. If you knew anything about me, you'd already know that. So your three points are one, that Bin Laden is a hero uh, for the Muslim world. And you feel entitled as as an ex-Muslim, which as far as I know would make you a dead Muslim in a Muslim country, Uh, you are entitled to nominate their heroes. What's your second point?
4: The second point I was going to tell you is that revenge is indeed sanctioned in Islam.
2: Not revenge against innocent Uh, people, no it isn't. No, but but, but I can give you the specifics if you want. Uh, There are no specifics uh, that sanction revenge against innocent people. There are none. You're supposed to be the ex-Muslim but I actually know your religion form a religion better than you do.
4: I, I, there's the Quranic verse 545, you know, Sur- Surat al-Almeida. Saying? which, which uh, Sur- Sur- Surat al-Almeida is Quranic verse 545, and it specifically talks about taking revenge for, against your enemy, an eye for an
2: eye revenge. Against your enemy, not against innocent people who happen to be on a bus in a country that you are at war with. No, I, I'm I hope your third point is better eye than eye your second. Well, for for quickly, me, terrorism, quickly has make it. Quick, quickly make it. You are wasting my time as I you love. promised you wouldn't.
4: Yeah, and the, the third point I was going to make is that terrorism for me has a more serious meaning.
2: What than murdering murdering in- innocent people isn't terrorism.
4: For me, terrorism means when you impose sanctions on other people's countries like the one in Syria and Iraq. Terrorism for me is when you... that,
2: That might very well also be terrorism. That does not negate the point that murdering innocent people is also terrorism. You are a troubled man, Imran. I don't know what your purpose is. If you're sincere, you're already on the watch list. If you are a provocateur, Uh, then you uh, deserve nothing but contempt. Let's hear from James in London. Go ahead, James.
9: Yeah, he was talking to that other guy who said he was an ex-Muslim. Yes. And you said uh, about killing innocent people, yeah? Yes. (laughs) Well, when there's a war, I think the British have killed innocent people as well. Not just in uh, Afghanistan, they've done it in many countries, you, you know, you, uh, the army of I'm probably in. not the
2: person you need to teach that to, James.
9: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, what you're saying there, you're sort of trying to make an argument with him about killing innocent people. Terror-
2: <laughs> terrorism is terrorism, whether it's carried out by a man in a turban in the Tora Bora, or a man in a suit in Whitehall or Washington.
9: Yeah, but what do you expect, I mean, if you go into a country and kill its, and its people, they're going to retaliate. Of course they are. If you're in the street and a man punches you in the face, you're going to retaliate against I- I'm going
2: to retaliate <laughs> against the man that punched me in the face. I'm not going to yeah. grab a woman in another part of town and beat her to death because a man punched me uh, in another part of town. Yeah, no, I know what you're
9: saying, but what I'm saying is it's a war. I mean, you know, when you're in a war, many well, people
2: involved. But, 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 there are rules in war, and more importantly, in the context of Imran in Washington, there are rules in no, his no, former no. religion. Hold on. There are rules in his former religion, which prohibit punching a girl in another part of town because a man punched you in a different part of town. That's my point. I don't need lectures from you about whether Bush and Blair and everyone that came after them are also terrorists. I know that. I'm the man that spoke it more clearly than anyone else. Go on, James.
9: Okay, right. You know, uh, at the end of the day, war is war. No one plays by the rules in war. When there's a war, they say, oh, you can't do this. You've got to capture the person, bring him back but you know put him on trial and blah 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 you know they don't do that if they catch someone in war and they bring him back to prison and they they hold him they don't play by the rules they torture him they beat him you know for anger that's what happens we don't know no one country when they're at war will they play by the rules
2: and anyone who does that is a criminal a war criminal whether whether they're in a suit in uh, Whitehall or in a turban in the Torah Bora. What is hard to understand about my, that point? That is my but, view. But, What's hard about it?
9: I know, listen. i tell you something, right? Okay. The reason why we've got wars going on, this is my personal experience, okay? This is what I see, is there's too much media. Way too much. You look at it, if you look at like, Fifty years ago, you had the BBC, you had your radio, right? There weren't very many radio stations putting out news. Now, you've got people making their front room or their kitchen or their living room and they're making it look like a professional radio station. And they're blurting out news. You know, look at the one where they said about the guy, he got hanged from a helicopter, right? I think that was CNN. They go, oh, they're, they're hanging people from a helicopter. Well, the guy wasn't hanging from a helicopter. He wasn't, he wasn't executed from a helicopter. He was actually hanging on. They were airlifting him out. So, you know, news, news and news reporters... That's
2: have fake got news. Lot, you're talking, lot, about, lot, you're talking lot, about fake news. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Plenty of it. There's plenty of it, James. But luckily, yeah. you've come to the only place, perhaps, where the news is not fake. Thanks for your call. Now we've got young James Giles with us for the last part of the show, and I'm very glad, James, uh, that you could make it. Let's start with Angela Rayner. Yes. Is she a red in tooth and claw class fighter, as progressive path thinks, or was this a cheap publicity stunt to say, I'm here in the next Labour leader elections. Certainly thousands of people voted for her tonight, All of a sudden, she was at 5%, and then she was at 55%. Thousands voted for her. Somebody must like her.
6: Well, evidently so. I mean, it would appear that her latest uh, media... um, Beg your pardon. her, Her latest comments have actually... Thank you. Sorry, I had my own voice in my ear. It's incredibly off-putting. That. That's better.
2: It's um, like GB News here.
6: It, it was just for a moment. Um, her latest comments are obviously made to provoke um, a reaction from the Labour membership and really set out her stall when the inevitable time comes that Keir Starmer. What is that has stall? That I,
2: I, I can't speak right. I'm vulgar. Uh, I, I'm a screeching fishwife, uh, throwing uh, insults and hate speech at everyone that doesn't yet agree with me is that a stall that many people are going to be queuing up at to buy
6: well i mean the labour membership is ever more uh, woke ever more faux left if you like and so the kind of comments that angela rayner came out with at conference will have gone down an absolute treat um you know tory scum that kind of thing you just need to take one brief look at social media to see the anger and the, frankly, rudeness of a whole swathe of Labour members. And it's exactly those kind of people that I think she's pitching to. The very people that mean that Rosie Duffield doesn't feel safe to come to her own party's conference. I mean, you are an MP almost because, 30 be, years.
2: Because she insisted uh, that, uh, that a man cannot become a woman by merely identifying as such.
6: It, quite. I mean, you know, it would, it would have been unfathomable 30 years ago that an MP did not feel safe to attend their own party conference. Not wanting to attend is a different matter altogether, but to not feel physically safe? I mean, there's something going very wrong there for sure.
2: Labour is on uh, one level uh, uh, veering uh, towards the cliffs of extremism, and yet on another level, the much more important level, Uh, about the big things in society. It's moving more and more to the right. So that, for example, Keir Starmer pledged in his leadership campaign that he supported the uh, nationalization of energy distribution, something that was actually a butzcalite common ground in Britain for many decades after the Second World War. Uh, He's reneged on that. In fact, denies that he even ever supported it.
6: Well, let's be quite clear. Keir Starmer said that he supported common ownership of public goods. Now, to you and I, of course, that means nationalisation. And I'm sure to most of the people tuning in here, whether they're British or across the pond, would take common ownership to mean in the public's hands. But no, according to Sir Keir Starmer, you know, former director of public prosecutions, a very good grasp of the English language, one would therefore expect and hope, that means something just a little bit different. Doesn't mean nationalisation, doesn't mean public ownership. He can't tell us what common ownership, by his definition, does mean, of course. But uh, yeah, he's completely gone back on that, which is why I think you've got people now being more vocal on the Labour conference floor coming out against Starmer. It appears to really have shifted back toward that Corbyn-y kind of viewpoint. David Evans at conference yesterday stood up and said, you know, we all have a reason for joining Labour. Do you remember yours? and a whole crowd of people chanted Jeremy Corbyn, which probably wasn't the response the Blairite General Secretary was looking for.
2: No, uh, it's true that uh, down on the conference floor there are quite a few uh, ragged remnants, some of them very ragged, uh, (laughs) of uh, the Corbyn period, but they have no power, as the uh, results of the votes are now steadily making clear. The reviled David Evans... Uh, is the General Secretary for life now until he goes to the House of Lords, even though a big push was made to try and stop him from being confirmed by the conference. But he was comfortably confirmed, 60 to 40. Uh, And uh, the uh, next Labour leader will be picked by a new system which effectively rigs and gerrymanders it against any kind of... Uh, Corbyn number two, uh, even an improved Corbyn, polished Corbyn, uh, ever being nominated, ever being on the ballot paper.
6: Well, let's be quite clear. If Sir Keir Starmer does get his rule changes through, which would mean that any candidate wanting to succeed him would need to get 20% of Labour MPs to nominate them to get on the ballot paper. If those rules had been in place in the last Labour leadership election, the ballot paper would have consisted solely of Sir Keir Starmer. Neither Rebecca Long-Bailey nor Lisa Nandy got enough nominations that would have taken them over that threshold. So it completely rules out any Corbyn market.
2: Andy Burnham wouldn't have been on the ballot paper when Jeremy Corbyn won it. No. Jeremy Corbyn, of course, wouldn't have been on it. He only got the 40 threshold. Uh, uh, by the skin of his teeth in the last moments Uh, John Prescott would never have been on the ballot paper against Tony Blair it's a fundamental uh, shift in power
6: oh it really is and you know put it this way if every single Labour MP were to nominate someone in a leadership election assuming they all nominated in an equal proportion there could be no more than five candidates ever for Labour leadership, and that's assuming all MPs nominate, which they never do, and they all were to nominate proportionally, which after Corbyn, when of course, if you remember, many MPs lent their support to Corbyn to get him over the line, that's never happening again. You know, no one is ever lending their support. they later
2: called themselves morons. They didn't Uh, Germany.
6: Mm. Any breaking
2: news out of there?
6: Yeah, there is in Germany. So uh, newspapers in Berlin are reporting that Armin Laschet, the leader of the Christian Democratic Union, which is... Merkel's successor. Merkel's successor, they've governed Germany now for almost two decades. He may not actually win a seat in the German parliament, in the Bundestag, which would be uh, major. That's never happened before uh, in Germany for what would be the government leader or potentially leader of the opposition, to actually lose their seats. So if that is the case and he doesn't become the Chancellor and the coalition talks are likely to be long and drawn out and Angela Merkel could well become the longest ser- serving German Chancellor ever given just how fractured German Sh- politics. So
2: will is. she need to stay on while all these talks are taking she place? She will need
6: to stay on as the caretaker Chancellor and if the talks go on beyond the 17th of December Uh, she will overtake uh, Kohl as the longest-serving German Chancellor in history. But if uh, Armin Laschet and the CDU don't take the uh, coveted chancellorship, there is now a very real possibility that he won't be able to lead the opposition in the German parliament because he himself won't be an MP. Wow, that's
2: amazing. Let's uh, hear from uh, Norma, uh, the legend in Bristol. Norma's got a view on the Labour conference. Go ahead, Norma.
5: Yeah, I have. George, can I just say something funny at the beginning? Yeah, of course. Um, you were on about Enid Blyton, and um, have you ever read Mr. Pink Whistle books? No. Um, he, was, he was magic, Mr. Pink. He was Enid Blyton, and he was magic, and your children would love it if
2: you Okay, could I'll, I'll make a note of that and do that, because we're running yeah. out. now. We've now read all of the famous five, <laughs> bar one book. I'm on the last book. Oh, they're great. They're great adventures. I think so.
5: Yeah. Anyway, I was watching the um, Labour Party conference on YouTube this afternoon and the debate was on anti-Semitism and it was so one-sided. Margaret Hodge, did you see it?
2: No, I couldn't. bring. uh, Wild horses couldn't drag me to watch it.
5: Well, do you know, it was awful. Margaret Hodge um, and nearly all the speakers were apologising and said no more and this has been a terrible time for the Labour Party. But lots of left-wing Jewish members, as well as, like, Chris Williamson, as you know, they've been expelled. All
2: expelled, yeah. Labour has yeah. expelled more, more Jewish people than yeah. any party in British history. Oh, but They're just was, the wrong type of Jews.
5: Exactly, but I mean, it was so one-sided, George. But um, I just wonder, really, there'll be some more debates tomorrow, and I do like watching a bit on YouTube, although I was disillusioned with that. Um well the people who might oppose um any debates will be given a hearing because it no, doesn't it's not to be... uh
2: it's always been rigged <laughs> Norma. But uh, Yeah, it's worse th- now. No now, now it's positively farcical. Well, um, it's was Margaret Hodge speaking from the floor or from the yeah. platform? Oh, um I because I wanna
5: switch on, it's about four o'clock. I think she was on the platform, but there were several On
2: other, what basis was she on the platform? I don't
5: know. I don't know. She's there not were quite an a lot. elected
2: member of the National no, know. Executive Committee. She's not a front bench spokesperson of the Labour. She's just a back bench MP.
5: Yeah, well, don't quote me, but I just have a feeling yeah, I not yeah, Very, very I interesting. Yeah, interesting
2: Well, you're watching it, so I don't have to. Oh, Norma. it was awful. It was awful. That is a public service. I'm very grateful to you for it. Norma, thanks for that call. She's got uh, a point. The Labour conference has always been rigged. I've only spoken at it once in, I don't know how many decades of being entitled to speak and how many times I've spent holding up my (laughs) hand to catch the chairperson's eye and failed. Uh, but it's become, I don't know uh, how to describe it, it's become slightly farcical now.
6: Oh, it absolutely has. I mean, you've got um, Margaret Beckett, who's chair of the NEC, obviously a Labour grandee. In, Dame Margaret Beckett, in, indeed, is this yes. Whom you yes. speak? It is indeed, of course, party grandee in their books who's been chairing the proceedings this week and has herself despite her extensive knowledge and years of experience of the Labour Party and its internal processes and wranglings actually been breaching the standing orders. I'll give you just one such example, every year the NEC produce a report to conference as I'm sure you'll no doubt be aware and the standing orders of the Labour Party say that that report has to be voted on by a show of hands. So, Dame Margaret Beckett, being Chair of Proceedings, said once the report had been presented, are we in agreement? There was a murmur of meh, meh. And she said, agreed, next item of business. And after that, delegate after delegate came up and said, Madam Chair, you're breaking standing orders, we need a vote on this by a show of hands. To which, of course, she was saying, you know, I'm saving you time, I'm doing this in your interest, you know, get off the stage. To which the next delegate had come up and say exactly the same thing. But it's a farce, because if Corbyn had been uh doing that while the left control imagine, the nec imagine, yeah. there would have been uproar not just in the labour party conference hall but the national media would have been all over it you know labour party breaking its own rules how can they be trusted to abide by the laws of the land if they won't abide by their own rules and one more example of that of course is the fact that despite keir starmer just last week calling for the national minimum wage to be raised to 10 pounds how much are conference stewards, uh, conference stewards being paid this year at Labour Conference? £9.50. Yeah. So they're you not couldn't, even practising what couldn't they preach. could make up.
2: Let's hear from Barry in Nottingham. Go ahead, Barry. Oh, hello, George. Uh, yeah, Angela Rayner. Um, yeah. Just my
9: observations. I don't think she's ever going to cut it with the middle classes in southern England, do you? I really
2: don't. <laughs> I really um, don't. Uh, All the, the, the working seat. class the in seat. the north who prefer, well, uh, prefer a bit more refinement in their representation.
9: Well, it's the southern seats Labour need to win, to win the majority in the yeah, next election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know what you think, but the only reason Tony Blair won three elections was by pretending to be a Tory, in my opinion.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, up to a point, I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, there's two audiences, Parry, and as James was saying earlier, she can appeal only to one. And it's worked. Yeah, exactly. You've got a Pavlovian reaction from people like Progressive Path, who did turn out to be a gutless coward and hasn't phoned the show. Uh, You've got this Pavlov, somebody saying vulgar, ugly things about the Tories. Hooray, I'll support them. That's its point. But of course, as you rightly say, uh, that would mean going into an election with a person that talks like that uh, and failing completely to win over yeah. the people whose votes you need. Barry, very good call, thanks for it. John in Yorkshire is the last caller. Go ahead, John. Oh, thanks for me on,
8: George. Uh, I've been watching your show for a while now. Thanks. Uh, my, quen- my question is very simple. Mm. Um, I, I live in Leeds, but I'm from Harrogate, oh, yeah. and uh, the factory of Yorkshire tea is there in Starbeck. Uh, I know if you're drinking the
3: uh, the Yorkshire tea out of that cup. Is it Yorkshire tea and do you get sponsored
2: by them? It's the opposite John, what it is the opposite It what is not cup? and never has been Yorkshire tea. It is <laughs> rooibos Redbush in a Yorkshire tea mug. So normally do I not get sponsored I get the pleasure of telling everyone, including you, I'm not drinking Yorkshire tea, so don't sponsor me. (laughs) Thank
4: you, George. I appreciate that. Appreciate it,
2: uh, John. Uh, Finally, going back to this Mm. German uh, issue, they'll need to get a new leader then. If he's lost his seat, they'll have to pick a new leader. And they had enough difficulty picking that leader?
6: Well they did indeed of course, before Armin Laschet you had AKK um, who was uh, Merkel's initial preferred successor, she fell flat with the German electorate just as it appears uh, Armin Laschet has. Now there's still a chance, it's not a great chance but there is a chance that the CDU may fall short in some seats and so he will get in via that top up method. But it's looking increasingly difficult for the CDU to even stay in government at all. Uh, The SPD, the equivalent of the Labour Party in Germany, have made real significant gains. The Greens are up to their best ever result in Germany. Uh, The left uh, party, uh, risen from the ashes of the Communist Party in East Germany, uh, is set to stay in Parliament. At one point it was looking shaky because you have to get more than 5% of the vote to get seats in Parliament. But the postal votes that have been counted so far, which make up about 40% of the votes cast in this German election, which is far higher than usual for the obvious reasons, uh, have proven good for them. So they're set to stay in Parliament. So you could actually even see um, a fully left-wing government in Germany made up of the Labour Party, the Greens and the left, uh, which really is the, the CDU's nightmare and indeed what Armin Laschet has been warning about uh, for quite some time which is you know if you vote for the equivalent of the labour party you're voting to let the hard left in it's very very similar campaign to that run by Theresa may in 2017. corbyn's a threat to national security coalition of chaos and it didn't end out well for Theresa may of course labour got their biggest increase uh, in vote share since 1945 in our election and indeed it hasn't worked in germany the left are making significant gains even if it is a Keir Starmer, Tony Blair-ish iteration of the SPD in Germany. They're still quite centrist, but they really are making gains, and the CDU are set for a period out of
2: government. I think so. Uh, It's hard for them to stay in government when their vote has fallen so much. Their leader may even have been voted out of parliament. It's most likely to be what the Germans call a traffic light government of uh, red if the SDP can... Remotely be described as red, green. Uh, But the amber would be the free Democrats, because they'd need them. They won't take Linka. I don't think. That would uh, be uh, a step too far uh, for the SPD. They'd be accused of facilitating the entry into power of former communists from East Germany. It's more likely to be the SPD, the Greens, and the free Democrats who've done at least on the exit poll, uh, quite well. But thanks uh, for talking us through it, Not Uh, Not because not everybody knows about German politics, and not everyone is as seized as they should be about the importance of those elections. Is there any chance of Merkel changing her mind and staying on? Well, there is a chance,
6: of course, that no
2: party will emerge
6: actually able to form a coalition. You know, the FDP, the Liberals have a fair, significant chunk of ideological differences with the Greens. And so there'll be a lot of tension there. So the Greens, recognising their performance, will want a significant dowry to go into government, because there is a price for doing so. So we could find ourselves back at the polls before too long in Germany. And should Armin Laschet uh, uh, fail to get a seat... Merkel could just stay on, who knows? I mean, nothing's impossible in this world.
2: Stay on, Angela. That will be (laughs) the cry from the European Union, that's for sure. Instability in Germany would be a serious problem, indeed, for uh, the European Union project, especially if Macron loses his election next year, uh, which cannot be ruled out. British politics, I'm afraid, has sunk still further this weekend. Not only has uh, an incompetent, absurdly incompetent government now stayed in power and likely to remain so, uh, but the very idea of a labor opposition has been discredited beyond any credibility. It's been marvelous for me. Hope it was for you. If it was, join me and Roger Waters next week at the same time. Downloads of the podcast. Huge numbers are downloading this week's highlights in the UK and in the US, but also in countries like Japan, India, Denmark, Saudi Arabia. You probably get executed for that. Korea, Switzerland, the UAE and Hong Kong in China. Thank you for all the great reviews you've been leaving on Apple Podcasts and including... This one. In British politics, Mr. Galloway stands as the last bastion of sense. Like a fine wine, he gets better with age. I have been a fan of his since 2002. I would recommend anyone to listen to him. The best podcast around. Thank you very much indeed. That was a touching testimony. Thank you so much. If you do listen, give a five star review. Why don't you? You are listening to the
1: Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS.